Welcome to BFR Radio, a podcast dedicated to all things BFR. This podcast is proudly sponsored by sportsrehab.com.au, where if you want to buy your own BFR cuffs or you want more information about the type of training or you just want more information, this is your one place to go. And I'm your host, Chris Gavilio. Hi everyone and welcome back to BFR Radio. Thanks for joining in and hope your training or your coaching is going well. Before I head into today's article review, a quick reminder that if you're looking for practical ideas on how to implement BFR into your own training, check out my Instagram, which is at Chris Cavillio, or my YouTube channel, which is Sports Rehab Oz. I've also been adding in 60-second snippets, and that's been particularly with my Twitter and my Instagram. I'd actually love to hear if you're enjoying the best bits of the podcast. Also, if you have any burning questions, come and join me for Your Questions Answered. This is where you get to ask a question or two, and I'll answer it, and everyone gets to learn. So if you do have a question, please contact me, and we can have a chat. If you're not keen to come onto the podcast, that's fine. I'll fashion the question into my own chat, and I'll just put something together as well. Also, from the last podcast, I did mention about the two-week hamstring rehab that I did with one of the uh, decathlon Olympians, Cedric Dubler, and... I am looking at a way of fashioning that into a podcast of sort. It's really fascinating. I've actually got the whole framework written out and there's actually lots of literature behind it as to why I did it and the reasoning. And once again, I can't explain any other reason as to why we were able to do that in two weeks, aside from the obvious things such as physio, nutrition and so forth. And before I get on to today's episode, uh, I've got a quick reflection on something that I experienced while using BFR just the other day. As some of the listeners may be aware, some time ago, I actually injured my knee and had it operated on twice, actually. Now, nothing too major and all is good. But if I do have long days on my feet, sometimes it gets a little bit tired and sore. And as I've advocated on this podcast, BFR is great for joint and tendon pain. I use it myself and regularly tell people about how performing movements through a pain-free range of movement whilst wearing the BFR cuffs, that's upper body cuffs on the arms for anything upper body, and obviously lower body on the thighs for anything lower body. And here, exercise selection is key. So movement or exercises that involve the area or close to traditionally brings the best result. So for a knee, I would typically have them on my thighs, perform a simple routine of small range of movement squats, lateral shifts, hip circles, and reverse lunges. And I've actually got a few of these videos floating around on my YouTube and also my Instagram. And usually within two sets, my pain is gone. And even simple things like sitting on a chair or a table, doing leg extension work just as well. Now, whilst I was at the Tokyo Pre-Departure Athletics Camp, one of the athletes was actually using the lower body cuffs and to kill some time, I thought I'd use the upper body cuffs and do a small upper body weight session. And at this exact time, my knee had actually been a little bit sore. Anyway, moving around whilst performing these upper body exercises, the pain in my knee actually dissipated. Now, traditionally, this has only been experienced while wearing the lower body cuffs and performing these relevant exercises, but it was actually just something really interesting I thought I'd note and share with you all. And maybe this supports the fact that there are systemic effects at play. And in particular, with respect to BFR use around pain, the increase in metabolites have been shown to stimulate muscle chemoreceptors, and in particular, the opioid and the endocannabinoid systems. And I do cover a bit of this in my longer four-hour workshop, 
which I haven't done a lot in person because of COVID. The goals actually take this workshop online, so stay tuned for that as well. Anyway, back to the idea around what I've just been speaking about. I was doing upper body BFR and had some sort of improvement in my lower body pain. This actually may provide a great avenue for someone who may be experiencing pain but can't wear cuffs on a particular body part. For example, someone who wants to decrease knee pain but has varicose veins in the lower body, they could consider using upper body BFR. I would think there would be a combination of primarily upper body exercises to initiate the increase in metabolic stress and then to trial relevant lower body movements with the upper body cuff still on. Totally conceptual at present, but these are my thoughts and I really enjoy sharing them with you all because if I can share them and it might positively influence someone else out there, I think I've done my job. And before I get on to today's episode, A quick shout out to all the Paralympians that just finished the Paralympics. Now, I work with two athletes in particular. One is Isis Holt, who finished second in the 100 and the 200, and actually ran under the world record time for both events. But unfortunately, first place ran quicker. And as she said in her interview, that if she's going to get beaten, she's going to make someone work hard for it. And also, Corey Anderson, big shout out to him, who finished fourth in the men's javelin. Both these athletes actually use BFR, and although I'm not going to talk about it in this podcast, I actually think in the Paralympic space that the use of BFR is an untapped training tool of unreal potential. I'll take Isis, for example, due to her cerebral palsy, but more so there's limb length differences, muscle tone differences, and joint range of movement angles that we just might be different on one side to the other so traditionally we would always think well we've got to load the body really heavy it's actually sometimes just not possible in some of these athletic populations and there's actually some wheelchair athletes paralympians who also use bfr for their upper body and when you're actually able to stimulate the same pathways as high load lifting using a lighter weight and therefore able to concentrate on really good technique, I think there is fantastic potential in this population. And perhaps if you're listening and you're saying, hey, it'd be great for me to get one or two of these athletes on the podcast on how we use it, let me know. I've had some great interaction just recently because their stories are fantastic and what they're able to achieve is unreal. So I've waffled on for a little bit here and I'm actually going to get on to today's episode and we're going to get off the land and we're actually looking at the use of BFR to improve swimming performance, something that I'm not good at. But the article anyway is called Remote Preconditioning Improves Maximal Performance in Highly Trained Athletes and it comes out of the University of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. This paper in particular focuses on the effect that ischemic preconditioning can have on the swimming performance. There are a few papers that I've actually reviewed on ischemic preconditioning and my podcast with Sam Halley looked at ischemic preconditioning and he also spoke about a few great papers that he authored as part of his thesis. And the application of ischemic preconditioning is passive and although the goal of this miniseries was to focus on BFR and sports specific training, this is still a really great paper to go through in respect to specific sports performance. If we look at ischemic preconditioning from a practical viewpoint, it's induced by cycles of inflation and deflation of a blood pressure cuff on a limb 
and releases a circulating protective factor into the bloodstream. Remote ischemic preconditioning has been shown to protect the heart and lungs against ischemia reperfusion injury in children undergoing cardiac surgery in adults undergoing cardiac and vascular surgery. Prolonged ischemia may lead to cellular dysfunction and cell death, which might be amplified by the reperfusion injury after the restoration of blood flow. In the sporting context, there are actually a few studies out there. And as a couple of examples, it's actually been shown in cycle testing using healthy subjects that local preconditioning of the legs have been found to improve maximal performance by around 1.6% and maximal oxygen consumption, that's VO2 max, by about 3%. So swimming in particular represents a unique physiological challenge to athletes. During high-intensity swimming, the nature of the breathing cycle results in breath holding, and this can actually result in significant decreases in the arterial partial pressure of oxygen. And this results in exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia and a decrease in blood pH. Now, exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia may be a significant contributor to the development of fatigue and skeletal, respiratory, and cardiac muscles responsible for the physiological limitation in maximal swimming exercise. Based on the benefits of ischemic preconditioning, it's possible that performing this ischemic preconditioning protocol before extreme exercise could render tissue more resistant to the adverse metabolic effects of high-intensity exercise in much the way it modifies tissue responses to clinical ischemia. Therefore, in this study, the authors hypothesized that ischemic preconditioning would improve maximal and sub-maximal swimming exercise performance of highly trained swimmers. The primary aim of the study was to evaluate the effect of ischemic preconditioning on exercise performance in these trained swimmers. I've selected a paper that's using highly trained athletes, and I thought that was really important to go along with the theme of selecting sports which have some application to performance outcome. The subjects were selected from Canadian competitive swimming teams at both the national and international levels. The swimmers' best performances were evaluated using an international point score system, which is actually recognized by the International Swimming Federation, which is called FINA. The system has a point score to each swim scale to 1,000 points, where a score of 1,000 points is equal to the mean of the eight fastest times in the history for that event. And so subjects with scores above 700 were included in this study, hence highly trained or elite athletes. In this study, there was actually a total of 23 athletes used. And firstly, there were 17 participants in a sub-maximal protocol and an additional six completed the maximum protocol. If we look at the procedure here, subjects were randomized by which they received the ischemic preconditioning protocol where they did four five-minute cycles of upper limb ischemia interspersed with five minutes of reperfusion that's letting the air out. And they also had that control procedure where they used a low-pressure cuff inflation and they had a crossover at the second study period. I've actually spoken about different protocols here where in this study, they've used four five-minute cycles of inflation and deflation. So that's 10 minutes per cycle times four, that's 40 minutes. And I had my social media protocol, which was three minutes on, one minute off times three, maybe four. And anecdotally, athletes that I've worked with have reported positive effects from recovery or a pre-training stimulus, and I felt that their session was much better. 
And from a practical viewpoint, if you look at 40 minutes versus 12 to 16 minutes, there's some sort of difference there. And I would imagine that most athletes would happily spend 16 minutes of their time flicking through social media. Or alternatively, what you could do is during that time period, the athlete could be just getting ready for the session, getting the bag ready, shoes on and so forth before they take the cuffs off and they do their warm up. Back to the study, ischemia was achieved by the inflation of the blood pressure cuff to a pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury greater than the measured systolic arterial pressure of the subjects. For the low pressure control procedure, the blood pressure cuff was inflated to only 10 mils of mercury. The reperfusion period, that's the deflation period, consisted of five minutes of full cuff deflation. On the subsequent study dates, separated by one week from the previous lock, Subjects were submitted to the intervention they had not received. Therefore, the data from each subject are reported as a comparison. The participants completed the preconditioning immediately before beginning their standardized warm-up, which lasted approximately 40 to 45 minutes, and the test procedures were then completed after the warm-up. If we look at the exercise protocols in the study, there were two different exercise protocols that they used. The first one was a submaximal incremental swimming test, which consisted of seven sequential 200-meter swims. Each 200-meter swim commenced at six-minute intervals and began from a push start. Each subsequent 200 meters was completed approximately five seconds faster than the preceding swim. Time, heart rate, stroke rate, and blood lactate was measured and recorded for each swimming increment. Blood samples were obtained to analyze lactate, and the swimmers were asked to swim the performance test in their best stroke style. The second test was a maximal competitive swimming test, and here the swimmers swam their preferred swim length, that's 100 meters or 200 meters, using their best stroke style at 100% effort. The measurements take into a time, blood lactate, and stroke rate and the maximal swimming performance testing was done either in a competitive or in a simulated competitive environment. In both cases, warm-up procedures were identical in both test conditions. The primary marker or the endpoint of the submaximal study that they were looking at was an improvement in the critical velocity, which was defined as the extrapolated intersection between maximal heart rate and swimming velocity of preconditioned subjects during incremental exercise testing. And the primary marker or endpoint for the maximal exercise test was swim time. The secondary endpoints were changes in blood lactate levels and changes in stroke rate. If we look at the submaximal incremental swimming testing results, there was no significant effects of ischemic preconditioning on any of the indicators of submaximal exercise performance. In particular, there were no significant differences between ischemic preconditioning and the low pressure control protocol on the primary endpoint of critical velocity uh, on the primary endpoint which looked at the improvement in critical velocity or maximal heart rate if we look at the results of the maximal competitive swimming test that was swimming either 100 meters or 200 meters flat out at 100 percent in their preferred stroke ischemic preconditioning was associated with an improvement in the competitive swim times in particular it was associated with a significant improvement for the 100 meters of an average of 0.07 seconds. Moreover, this improvement in swim time for the BFR group was not achieved at the expense of an increase in lactate production or an increased heart rate. 
in summary, ischemic preconditioning was not associated with an improvement in the incremental submaximal exercise, but it was associated with an improvement in maximal performance in highly trained swimmers. That's why I thought this paper fitted really well with my little mini-series, because we really want to focus on BFR interventions that can help our competition outcome. If we refer to the points in the beginning, the original author's hypothesis was around that the intense exercise represents a physiological form of ischemic injury and therefore may be amenable to modification by ischemic preconditioning. The authors speculated that performing ischemic preconditioning might modify skeletal muscle tolerance to this tissue hypoxia through the intense exercise in particular competition, thereby improving maximal exercise performance outcome. If we look at some of the points in the discussion, the authors commented on the lack of significant effect on the incremental submaximal exercise tolerance in these same individuals. And this was thought to be due to the prescriptive nature of the submaximal test, which by its nature aims to ensure that the swimmer completes successive swims within those defined time limits. Now, whether the lack of difference reflects the sensitivity of the athlete's endpoints to demonstrate any kind of physiological change during submaximal exercise, or rather that ischemic preconditioning may have a different effect on cellular responses during a maximal stress. This, however, remains to be seen. Nonetheless, the effects on maximal performance in terms of swim time in the face of such cellular responses was clear. Although this study did not explore subcellular mechanisms as to what could be happening, the authors speculated that the difference observed is related to differences in the pathways of energy utilization during submaximal and at maximal exertion. During submaximal exercise, energy is produced mainly by the aerobic oxidative pathway, whereas during maximal performance, energy is produced not only by the breakdown of phosphocreatine, but also by the anaerobic glycolytic pathway, in addition to the aerobic oxidative system. It's known from performance models that predicted exercise capacity is determined by the capacity to produce energy, ATP, by different metabolic pathways. And interestingly, in vivo studies, or rather studies done in living animals or humans, it's been shown that ischemic preconditioning leads to opening of mitochondrial ATP-sensitive K channels and uncoupling of oxidative phosphorylation, where oxidative phosphorylation is the process of which ATP is formed. This process, which takes in mitochondria and is the major source of ATP in aerobic organisms. Or in other words, ischemic preconditioning allows for process and pathway activation that allows for the tissue protective mechanisms against potential ischemic injury. Or similar and with respect to exercise, it allows the body to handle lactate better and therefore provide better energy source in this case, it's aerobically generated ATP throughout the exercise bout. With respect to this study, the improvement in mitochondrial metabolism may explain these observations of faster swimming speeds at a consistent blood lactate level. Irrespective of the mechanism, a 0.70 second reduction in time not only was statistically significant, but was also a major physiological and competitive significance to the athletes which represented a 1.11% improvement in swim time. 
It's actually been suggested that an improvement of 0.4% in competition performance is a competitively significant change. Such improvements are usually generated by a structured training program. In highly trained swimmers, the relationship between the training regime and the competitive performance is well prescribed. Therefore, from the test data, the observed improvements in simulated competition swim time of 0.7 seconds would represent, on average, two years of training in these highly trained individuals. A positive point that I'd like to highlight in the paper was in the results where they showed the individual athlete change in swim time from both interventions. The paper highlighted who responded and who didn't respond to the ischemic preconditioning stimulus. As with most interventions, and in particular with BFR and elite populations, I have advocated that there will be responders and there will be non-responders. And with simple tasks such as in low-load resistance training, we always get this positive response. However, the role of more complex uses of BFR, such as ischemic preconditioning or even hormonal priming, I've actually found that this requires a high level of individualization due to this responder-non-responder phenomenon. Of the 18 athletes who completed the maximal swim test, it was clear that 14 athletes showed a good positive response. One athlete was positive, but perhaps by the graph you could say it was equivocal, and three athletes swam slower after ischemic preconditioning, or in other words, they were the non-responders. And for me, studies that highlight their results in this way gives a much better understanding of the athlete population and shows that there will be these responders, non-responders, as opposed to gestating a group mean. As a coach or as an athlete, it is important to tease this out and trial these interventions in advance. And to put this into practical sense, if we refer to the decathlete who came back from his hamstring injury within two weeks, I worked with him in that rehab stage and he used it both passively and actively around his sessions and recovery. Now, does it truly work in the passive recovery sense for the next session? It's a really great question. But as he put it, it's not giving him any adverse reactions. He's training well, and as a team, we believe that it positively contributed to the whole program. That's the end of today's podcast. If you've actually tried ischemic preconditioning, I'd love to hear about your experiences. So drop me a message on my socials, which is at Chris Cavillio, or contact me via my website, which is sportsrehab.com.au, and we could talk about it a little bit more. And as a couple of favors from me to you, if you know of someone who would benefit from this episode, please share it. And also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please give it a rating on iTunes. And if you're interested in purchasing your own set of BFR cuffs, please visit my website, which again is sportsrehab.com.au. And I can also help you with your training. So contact me via my website or through my socials, which is at Chris Cavillio. Once again, thanks for listening. Appreciate your time and remember to keep the pump.